Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 5, Episode 3. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, we will be playing a recent webinar with S.G. Ellison, a 330-unit Taco Bell and Arby's franchisee. S.G. started as an engineer, became a real estate developer, and eventually became one of the country's largest restaurant franchisees. We'll be talking about his personal journey, how their companies have grown, their operating and management philosophies, thoughts on the current operating environment, comments on the future of real estate, key learnings from the Taco Bell brand for would-be franchisees, and growth for the future within the restaurant industry. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, welcome those of you who are trickling in. I know you'll keep trickling in here, but uh, welcome. I'm excited to have you know S.G. Ellison here. This will get put into a, you know a podcast, so if you you know, and it'll be on our website. So, a couple of rules to guide us by here. Number one, if you want to find the replay at any time, it'll be available on our website on bridledcapital.com in a couple of days, probably. It'll be uh, dubbed on our next podcast, so you can have a chance to listen to it. The podcast is the Restaurant Boiler Room, and then it's on YouTube too. And surprisingly, man, we get like several hundred people listening to it on YouTube every month, so that must be a medium that people use. Uh, you know, nonetheless. I'm thankful for everybody who touches base and listens on all the different, you know, media that we have. Usually I do a quick update, like before we get started, you know, just about the deal market. I think Unbridled has 16 deals going right now, which would continue to represent probably a, a pretty significant reduction in what we've seen over the last several years, probably at least a 30 to 40% reduction in deals, you know, and I think that's probably emblematic of what's happening in the industry. There's a supply demand issue with selling restaurants right now. Good restaurant businesses really, you know, aren't on the market as readily as they as they have been in the last couple of years. And so, we had like a, a Taco Bell, a Wingstop, and a, and a Burger King be on on the market each of those three in the last like 60 days or so. Outsized amount of interest from buyers, and I think it's just because people have have cash from ERC credits and other things and want to spend their money, but they don't have anywhere to put it. Uh, I think the deal market probably continues to stay a little bit depressed here for the next three to six months, but maybe we'll see it open back up as we get into the third and fourth quarter of 2023. So that's my quick assessment. And with that, I'd like to introduce S.G. Ellison. And, you know, I've known S.G. for, I'd throw a year out there. It's got to be over 10 years now, right? Like, you know, 10, 11, 12 years since you've gotten into business. And and uh, we've personally done done a couple of deals together. Really thankful for that too. And uh, I'd love to just have you tell your story and the story of your company. And then maybe, you know, you're you're almost like an advisor type of person, even though you're a president and you've got some great thoughts about the M&A market and financing market and you've got a good real estate background. So I think you'll find guys that this that this uh, webinar will be really kind of a, a neat mix of different areas of expertise that you can apply to what you, what you know in this business. So welcome SG, tell us about yourself, brother. Hey, Rick, thanks for having me on. You know, when you asked me to be on, I, I was thinking about that question of how long have I known you? And it is about 10 years. I started our development company about 10 years ago. And before I got into being a franchisee, I was pitching real estate sites to, to Taco Bell owners. And I remember being 
in a booth at like a franchise forum on this side of it, trying to trying to get build a suit deals in a new program we had developed with Taco Bell. And you were on the other side, you know, just starting your business at Unbridled. So when you, you asked me to be here, I was like, well, we both had a, a pretty interesting journey over the last 10 years. Yeah. We kind of both kind of small market guys from a young time. And now we're uh, now we've got some pretty successful partners and some pretty good businesses. So congratulations on what you've been able to do. Thank you. That's really kind. And back at you. Who would have thought a, a, an old boy from Arizona would have like a this massive restaurant business, right? Like, wow. Like, I mean, yeah. all these people, it's almost like you're like like a military arm or something. You're you're getting <laughs> you get so large. I can imagine the, the all that goes into it, but tell us a little bit about it all. Like, I mean, well, how how, yeah. how did it get going? How did, I mean, how's it come to this? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it, it was, you know, and I'm, I'm gonna talk a little bit about people and you know, I'm I'm usually a pretty good listener, so I don't I don't speak uh, a lot to to people about you know my journey, but um, I'm happy to do it here, and hopefully it resonates with with some folks. But you know, it I'm actually calling in from from Maui, not technically on R and R trip, but here to celebrate you know Taco Bell and some of the Versified Restaurant Group's team members. We have uh, the Golden Bell Awards here in Maui this week. Uh, and we were fortunate enough to have eight Golden Bell winners at, at DRG of Taco Bell. And the Golden Bell is essentially given to the top 100 general managers across the, the system. I think now they've expanded it to international. So there might be a few more here. This is the most that we've had in our organization. We've obviously have more locations now so that, you know, relatively speaking on a pro rata basis, you would expect it to increase. But I think we have at 300 stores, which we just opened our 300th location in Kansas City uh, two two months ago, and we've been celebrating that uh, for Taco Bell. But out of out of 300, we're probably you know three and a half to four percent of the total store count in the U.S. So to have you know essentially eight percent of the winners, we're kind of out kicking our coverage there, and that's a testament to to Todd Kelly and Tom Douglas and all the GMs that have. Uh, put a lot of work into this and our directors. And it's, it's, it's really fired me up. You know, this morning they had a 6 a.m. business review for the GMs. And I, I wasn't actually planning on being there, but the time zones, I was up pretty early, walked around, got to go in and see what they were doing. And I got to meet a guy named Justin Patton. Justin was an interesting story because he was a school teacher. My, my parents were school teachers. And so that was really interesting to me. And he went through and joined um, Taco Bell, eventually Yum Brands as a trainer. Training is sort of like teaching and uh, started to, to really, you know, talk about how to make stores and, and, and grow leaders. Uh, and one of the things I was reading, and he has a book, and it was about trust. And what he, the question he posed in the book was, was is trust given or earned? And, uh, and about 70% of the respondents will say uh, trust is earned, right? And so that is something that people kind of think. And he tends to go to the other side and say, well, it's, it's, you got to give trust to see if somebody can earn it back. And he really kind of comes together with this thing that trust is built. So it's really a balance of both sides of this. And that's really sort of what our business is. And that's what kind of got us going in Taco Bell and and real estate world is you got to kind of trust who your partners are. I'm fortunate to have great partners and and Dave Grieve helped me, you know, start the company back 10 years ago. And we've sort of built this company and this team based upon that value of trust. That's great. You know, and congrats to all those winners. 
I mean, as I think about you, you guys started off as real estate guys, right? Tell me a little bit about that. And then, and then kind of, how did you move into to restaurant operations? I mean, it's, you know, you guys are kind of at the forefront of it. You know, people who listen and tune in, hear me talk about like 2013, 14 and 15, you started seeing this migration and move to a type of franchisee. Some of them were private equity and family office groups out of New York, let's say, young, raising money, buying assets. And others kind of came from the real estate side, kind of then saw, gee, this real estate thing is doing pretty well. And we love the businesses on top of them. And, and we want to be a franchisee. And that's kind of the way you guys came at it, really, I think. So tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Well, yeah, I mean, you you sort of asked me earlier in the week, how did I start? and Why real estate and restaurants? And, yeah. you know, I was kind of thinking about that question. And you try to go back to, you know, your childhood and say, why am I doing what I'm doing now? Was there any sort of influence? And all I can remember is I really like playing in the dirt. My parents both worked really hard. My mother was a school teacher. Her father was a, a minor and then became a school teacher. So I was at home quite a bit. And back in the early 80s, we didn't have, you know, a lot to, to keep us entertained. So I'd get a stick and just sort of build my own Sim City out there in the dirt and try to, you know, <laughs> you know, have an imagination around that. And ultimately, you know, I like food. So that was that's why I'm in the restaurant business. But those two things started built upon each other. I ended up going to, you know, Arizona State. I loved buildings. So I, I emphasize in structural engineering with a, you know, civil background. Did you get a civil engineering degree? I did, man. I did actually. From yeah, ocean engineering from the Naval Academy, but I ended up which is a portion of civil engineering. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Similar. I remember I remember us chatting about that. So I, I ended up going into sort of structural engineering. I was pretty good at math. Didn't read a lot of big books. I was, I'm sort of semi-dyslexic here, so it takes me a little bit longer to, to get through some of that. But math was kind of my deal. And I, I thought I would be a great structural engineer and build kind of the next Sears Tower. And I was uh, sitting in an office one day in my first job out of college, and I was doing moment calculations, you know, WL squared over 12 or something. And I did it about 8,000 times in a week and figured... This isn't really me. I'm, I feel like I'm a little bit more people person. So I kind of moved on and started in the land development engineering side, worked for a company called Carter and Burgess, who's now Jacobs. At that point, I started to become more of a, a land planner, which had a little more strategy to it, going back to that real estate side of it, right? And became a project manager for the firm developing CVS drugstores. Mm-hmm. And at that time in 2000, there was exactly zero CVS drugstores in the Western US. And the company I worked for out of the Northeast had been a developer for them. And they had migrated essentially out to, to the West uh, as a preferred developer for CVS. So I was doing the engineering side. They ultimately needed to open an office. And right when I was going to sit for my PE exam, they asked me if I wanted to come over and help them open that office and, and run their entitlement and construction facilities. And so I did. And a few years later, the real estate um, acquisitions manager left or director left. And instead of them hiring somebody else, I told them I could do that. So I I kind of learned how to deal make through the 2000s through CVS drugstores and another company called uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. We did about 50 uh, of those locations. So I, I did about 350 deals, you know, over five, six, seven years with, with a great team and learn, you know, the, the art of negotiating, the art of, you know, getting the right type of deal 
and met a lot of people. And that's, that's how I met David Green was, uh, was through, through that business. He owned some drug, drug stores. And, um, and that was about 10 years ago when we started, we started, uh, first street development. Okay. Okay. And then first street development was ended up uh, backing the Taco Bell franchisee who was acquiring some corporate stores, right? Down in Southern California. And, and then that's how you guys got into the real estate side of Taco Bell. And then, Right. Presumably yeah, yeah. from there, you, you got into okay. the business side of it for a while, right? Is that how it happened? Yeah. Yeah. Well, close. Not not exactly. I mean, David was uh, was a founding partner with me in First Trade Development, along with, with Andrew Chern and Peggy. So our intent with the development company was to take, you know, kind of the what we had learned over the last decade and be a real estate developer. And, and we had some good contacts and good clients throughout the West. And so we were going to do that. But well, what had happened was at around the same time, we found a handful of Taco Bell triple net deals in Los Angeles. And a good friend of mine named Mark Miller, who ran you know, real estate for CVS, had a friend, that he, a neighbor, his name was uh, Brian Cox. And Brian was getting ready to leave Taco Bell. He was awarded uh, 29 stores, him and, him and Mark Reed in a refranchise in 2012. And I got a chance to meet Brian at a social event with Mark and just started chatting about what he was going to do. And um, and he had some uh, potential partners that seemed like they were going to take a big chunk of the company. And so we had talked about doing a sale lease back on the fee-owned properties and he can generate some of the equity, uh, additional equity that he needed to, mm-hmm. to buy the company. And he thought that was a great idea. I obviously didn't have the money to do the sale lease back, but had been started working with David and called David and he was in the triple net uh, retail business and loved, loved the idea of buying those, those properties through basically AC Ventures, the company that he started in 1992. And we went to execute that. And essentially the brand, and I think maybe GE Capital at the time were, were sort of like, well, you know, we don't want to just arb this real estate and then, and then the real estate not be there for collateral. So we need so sort of need the real estate to stay in the deal for a bit. So we did like a two to three year walkout sort of forward commitment on we'll take the real estate in two or three years. In the meantime, you know, we'll take a limited partnership interest in in the taco making business. And we sort of convinced ourselves that that would be an interesting thing to do. And that was late 11, early 12. And I think the brand was kind of rebounding from, from some issues in the 2000s. And they came out with like one of the greatest products ever, which was the DLT. And I think we got in at a re- pretty reasonable multiple at that time. Sales took off. You know, we started to see some really good, you know, returns on the equity side. And that's when John Hoffman joined us, who had kind of been in the investment banking, you know, stockbrokers business back in the day. And so, you know, David and John were like, this is a really good business. We should, we should try to, you know, stay in it. And uh at the time, I think we bought a seven cap in the real estate, which today would be great. But the returns on tacos were, were you know, in the double digits. So we, we were kind of thinking we were on the wrong side of that deal. And yeah, ultimately, yeah. Um, Brian and Mark were able to, to create some value and essentially refi. And David helped with the structure, really refining us out. And then they got to keep the real estate. And we essentially, at that time, went and found in 2000. 13 closing 14 an opportunity to buy uh, 75 units from Dolan Foster uh, Rich Lowe and Randy Rodriguez owned the company at the time with, with Paul Luce 
And that was sort of our first step into our wholly owned franchise business. Kevin Burke, one of your frenemies at, at Trinity and, and Citizen, did a great job at helping us kind of get, get started with that and has also been really helpful over the years uh, like you have. And I think all you guys are, are really great at, at what you do. And, and I think you have a lot of great clients. And, and I think that that community is just pretty tight. And uh, I think you guys do a good job. But we started then. After that, we bought you know, 63 units in Nevada. And then we just started acquiring. And over 10 years, you know, we've been able to accumulate 300 restaurants. Really, in 2014, September was our first, first acquisition. So that's sort of how it started. From September 14 till now, you've gone from basically zero to 300 units. Quite a journey. And, you know, I know your first acquisition was kind of, you know, San Francisco area, kind of, and then around, and then Las Vegas. And and then, you know, um, I was involved in helping you guys buy the Kansas City market in 2017. And then, you know, you guys have come down to San Diego. You've gone up to, I guess we helped you buy the uh, Nevada market, Northern Nevada market. And and so, yeah, it's been great to watch. And you guys got into a second brand too along the way, didn't you? You're also Arby's franchisees now too. And what do you think about the difference between, you know, those brands and those franchisors? Uh, just out of curiosity. I mean, I've always, I've, I've, I've been, you, you know, I've said this a lot over a lot of different platforms, but like the um, the fraternity either usually goes from Yum Brands or GE Capital. Everyone kind of has like some sort of a corollary back to that to that starting point. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the differences between the brands and the, and the management teams and the franchisors and things like that. The major difference is just the product, right? You're dealing with two different types of product. I mean, the similarities, you know, is, is good leadership, right? I mean, and what vision that Paul Brown has had when he, when he bought Arby's and then started just to add these other franchisors together, you know, he's created a, a really unique, unique place where you have some shared, shared services. He's trying to develop best practices across brands and the leadership at, at Arby's, what Jim Taylor is doing. We, We've got Rita Patel now doing the marketing. You know, they they just have a lot of top line opportunity there. So that's kind of the similarity, right? Is that growth um, is really the mindset, but behind both both brands. And when you look at sort of where where the AUVs are, you say, okay, what what's the AUV potential relative to the market? When you look into a brand like Arby's and you see the types of franchisees that are coming into the brand, a really high quality growth-minded you know, franchisees uh, like KBP. And uh, obviously Flynn has a really big stake to uh, two franchisees that have been very helpful to us. You know, and that that's really one of the one of the things that sets us apart and really sets actually Taco Bell apart as well is the franchisees that are in the brand. You know, we've we early on for whatever reason you know, they adopted us, you know, maybe because we, we bought a lot of stores and they figure, figure we, we better make sure these guys don't go too far afield. But I think, I think they, they realize that we're willing to, willing to put capital into the business, right? And we're willing, willing to, to drive investment, to, to, to drive brand awareness and to drive revenue for, for us and for everybody else. And, you know, that kind of sh- showed through when we started to do the cantinas, you know, we opened up uh, one of the first uh, cantinas in uh, when we opened in San Francisco was actually the first Taco Bell to have the cantina moniker. You know, Neil and and, and Rob had opened up a, a a Taco Bell that became a cantina in Wicker Park. That was the f- first one. And then shortly thereafter, when we bought Las Vegas, 
that was a big hole in the Las Vegas strategy was not having a Taco Bell on the Strip. I'd had some experience on the Strip. I had built four uh, CVS drugstores on the Strip, one of them way far north that wasn't very successful. But if you stay between, you, you know, the 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 go posts, you, you you can do pretty well. And the franchisee before us said, "Well, I'm not going to do a Taco Bell on the Strip because the the rent's just too high. And we realized that, you know, it's sort of like if you build it, you they'll come, you know, and we could build a Taco Bell and and maybe we'd sell a few tacos, but we really had to build a flagship. And and I saw what, what CVS had, did with their first drugstore. And I think they had planned, they bought the property for $18 million. It was a quarter of an acre right in front of what used to be the uh, Monte Carlo. And they needed to do about $20 million in revenue to make the thing pencil for, for it to, to, to meet the pro forma. And they ended up doing that with just water and sunglasses, you know, and, and I think they did, you know, north of 40 million the first time. So, you know, David had a lot of experience on the strip looking at properties. I had built some. So we, we went to Taco Bell and said, let's do something really great. And this is what we want to do. And we weren't sure that they would go as, as along with us as far as we wanted to, but they really jumped in with two feet. They brought more than we would have ever expected. I mean, we built this really great sort of Willy Wonka destinational Taco Bell that really aligns with what the brand's fun and, and, and consumer mindset and keeping it young. And we've had just an amazing, amazing run with that and have since opened seven cantinas, all unique to their trade areas, all very successful. You'll see the Las Vegas cantina quite a bit. You'll see Pacifica out on the beach quite a bit. And the brand has been really helpful in helping us to um, maximize the potential in those assets. For those of you who may not have, have, have you know, maybe some of you listening or watching haven't, uh, haven't been to a Taco Bell cantina, it's kind of this mix between Taco Bell and crazy nightclub. And, you know, it's just got a, a really fun and edgy feel to it. And you ought to check out the one on South Las Vegas Boulevard. It's a, it's really something to behold. As a matter of fact, I seem to remember somebody was singing the Humpty Dance, you know, there uh, a couple of years ago. I was, yeah. uh, I, I was <laughs> hoping to bring that up and get a cameo, but maybe, maybe towards the end of the, of the show. But it's, it's, I mean, that that Taco Bell, I think, helped put us on the map a little bit for folks that were willing to try some things, but also protect the brand values, right, and yeah. to care for what what the the folks before us have built. And I think that that really helped. And when you look at Taco Bell, it's you know, most everyone's of a growth mindset, right? And within the brand, within the franchisees. And when I was first starting the business in real estate in, in like 2002, I got a chance to go to a Phoenix Open lunch. You know, you have the lunch and there's all these people that come and it's before the tournament, like a month before, and they usually have speakers. And Lou Holtz was there. He's, you know, the West Virginia guy. And he was uh, an idol just from, you know, as a college football fan and he said you know if you're not growing you're dying you know so take a take an inventory of your life and put it in motion and, and start doing some things and i i'd originally thought that was you know that meant just go grow for the sake of growing and realize that it, it really is about growing people growing emotionally investing uh in things that will help people grow and the, it's the people that will grow your top line your revenue and, and it's what you invest in them that will, you know, ultimately uh, help you grow your company. And that's how I think we've gotten from, from zero to 300 is we put a lot of effort into trying to build the right culture, starting with 
you know, Todd and Tom and all, all the team that really, you know, they really put the culture out there and we're, 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 we're just trying to feed it and give them the opportunity to feed it. And they, they do a really good job with it. Well, that's great. That's great. You know, I think I told you when we were doing our, uh, you know, kind of intro here that, that, uh, you know, the people who watch and listen, you are kind of this interesting mix of franchisees and lenders and private equity people and, you know, franchisors and, and investors and all these kind of, kind of people. And so I'm just trying to think of, um, maybe pivoting a little bit to maybe some, uh, some, uh, some, some comments that you might, you know, jump into and talk about kind of, you know, what makes maybe, you know, like I've got four or five questions that we could ask, but, you know, but maybe the first one could be like, I mean, what's the operating environment look like right now, you know, to somebody who might be listening and isn't a franchisee and, and may or may not be, you know, uh, you know, know what's going on. I mean, what's it like in this environment to operate a, a business that has 300 units. And I mean, I guess with the Arby's, you, you know, I, I don't know how many Arby's you have, but 30, we have 30, we're opening up our yeah, 30th so. location in Pahrump, Nevada. If it hasn't opened yet, it'll open in the next day or two. Yeah. 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 That's great. Congratulations. So over Thank 330 you. locations, uh, what's going on out there? What's it like, in the, you know, right now? <laughs> I mean, it's very, very difficult. It's not, it's not easy. Right. And, and, Again, we've only been in it for 10 years, so we haven't seen all the cycles, but we I feel like we've gotten a master class in operating cycles from, you know, from, from pre-pandemic, through pandemic, through labor crisis, through supply chain, through inflation. So um, we've got a pretty good education in the last handful of years of, of what happens. And fortunately, we're in a brand on the larger side, like Taco Bell, that has, has a lot of resilience and, you know, we call it, you know, sort of recession resilient, if you will. I mean, we're not quite in a recession yet, but, you know, and and has a lot of resources where people share best practices. Uh, and they're just one of the, you know, they're just one, they're just, they're just, they're the number one franchisee, franchisor uh, relationship the last two years. I think you probably read that. And they really have that sort of foundation of restless creativity that, that Mark King has kind of brought to the company. And when we look at, when we look at, uh, what he's done with the leadership. It's the best, you know, leadership team that I've seen in the last decade, bringing in, you know, Sean Tresmont and to run the brand, Scott Nizvinsky, who's just doing an amazing job at understanding, you know, what drives the franchisees and giving them space to drive them, drive the business. And then I, I was here this morning and, or last night, got to hear Mike Graham's motivate when he gets in front of general managers, there's nobody better that motivate, right? And and when you look at the operating business, you need the operating challenges, you need people like that that can help you navigate um, you know, the challenges that are in front of us. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we look at is is sort of operating in California. You know, it's 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 a challenging uh environment to operate in. You know, we just had that fast act. Um sort of a, a put into law last September, we were able to, you know, garner enough signatures to get a referendum going and, and take it to the ballot in 24, which I think gives the opportunity for the, the franchise community uh, and the restaurant community in general to tell the narrative of, of, of how great these, these jobs are and how great the opportunities they create for people to grow in, in their careers, right? And so, well, well, it's difficult, you know, I, I tend to believe that as you scale and, and as you build upon what your baseline is, you're able to handle a lot more of those challenges 
a lot better, right? And surrounding yourself with the right people that can help you handle those challenges and strategize. You know, Mark King, I listened to uh, Guy Raz. You're like the Guy Raz of investment banking. You know that? <laughs> I don't know Guy Raz. Is this guy crazy? You're, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's not as crazy as you, but he's like a professional podcaster. Okay, um, Guy Raz. I haven't listened to him, and if okay. the folks that are listening haven't yeah. listened to him, uh-huh. I, I find I find him to be super interesting. He has a uh, podcast called Wisdom from the Top. It's probably the only podcast I I listen to, and you know, on, on you know, every month or two when I have some free time or an hour, he has some really amazing people who, you know, are not, he, he did the one called uh, the founder or how I built this is what it was called. So he would talk to people who built um, companies and now he has one for the last couple of years called uh, wisdom from the top. So it's folks that, you know, sometimes building a company um, from the ground up, is a lot different than running sort of a, a large stabilized country company. So you mm-hmm. have you have folks like you know Mark King was on there recently, who obviously ran TaylorMade and, and, and Adidas, and uh, he you should listen to his story um, because it's really amazing from where he started in Wisconsin to mm-hmm. running these great companies. And you know one of the things he says on it, and I talked to him about this two weeks ago when, when we were in Florida, was he really his baseline is the Rita King rule which was his mother and his, his, the rule was, you know, essentially you don't, you don't need to know the answers, but you need to know how to get them. Right. And so he's really kind of built a team at Taco Bell that are folks that, you know, may not have, you know, done everything and have, have, have all, all the exact background in the restaurant business, but they do know how to get the right answers and, and, and help support the right teams. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of something that, that I've always sort of used as, as well, you know, like I've walked into different inter- industries, not knowing, you know, a whole lot about them, but knowing that, you know, um, we can figure them out. Right. And in, in, in engineering, we, we sort of learned that rule called Oxen's razor where, you know, the simplest solution is the easiest solution. And mm-hmm. so you take complex things and you kind of back pedal and you can go find the answers you know when david and i were running really hard in the in like you know from 14 to 2020 when we started to build this restaurant company we were still buying a lot of real estate and our team was getting a lot bigger at the investment headquarters in sonoma and you know there was a lot of folks that were just coming in and asking for you know what to do on things and and similar to to the Rita king rule but different he sort of posted a sign that just said bring solutions you know, you come in with, you're going to have an issue, but just, just come in and say what you think you should do. And then we, he can, we can sort of validate what that idea was. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that the operating environment is very difficult. You know, you, you know, unionization is, is something that is a dirty word that we don't like to talk about in the business. But, it, but you know, it's real when people are running around trying to unionize store by store, whether it's Starbucks or Chipotle we had a strike uh, in one of our locations at one time, but you bring in the right people to find the right answers to support the right teams, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, unions, I think, were important at one time or, or in some industries, right? My my father was an underground copper miner. My my grandfather, my namesake SG, was he was an underground copper miner. My mom's dad, Demetrio Sapien, they were they were all underground and they were 
5,000 feet below grade with a jackhammer, you know, that, 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 that sort of environment in the, in the early, in the seventies and eighties and, and in the, in the, in the uh, auto industry and a lot of industries you really needed, you know, to those folks to protect, you know, labor nowadays market drives that protection. You know, you have social media, you've got, you've got news, you, you can't, you've got to do the right thing by your team members or employees or, or you're going to be out of bounds. And so we just have to tell that story to the California voters that I think they'll understand it. And then they'll understand that if you grow wages too rapidly, that that's only going to affect uh, pricing at the end of the day. And you're going to pay more at the pump, you know, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I don't talk as, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, this is kind of going off off topic a little bit, but you know, with all the things that you said you've learned from Taco Bell, um, if you were like yourself ten years ago, and you were looking to maybe you know get into a brand, I mean, what what like three things have you learned from Taco Bell that you say uh, you'd look for in a new brand that might be smaller but growing a little bit? You know, if you're going to be either an investor or somebody to operate it. Um, Anything pop to mind that you might, because obviously there's all kinds of ways to get into the franchising world. You know, uh, one is to invest in tier one, you know, uh, uh, assets and, and brands and to grow through consolidation and new growth. But, but there are a lot of, you know, new startup franchises out there. And I just kind of wondered how, how would you think about that? What, what learnings would you take and apply that to a new venture? A new well, brand? I think if I, if I, if I knew what today, what I knew 10 years ago, I think I would end up kind of in the in the same place. It's like, yeah, no, you know, do yeah. you have do you have do you have a category that's sort of a a, a category killer or owns the market, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Taco Bell certainly its closest competitor is not very close. Arby's is a very unique provider in their segment. You know, there's not anybody that does exactly what they do mm-hmm. in a drive-through format with the quality of product that that they have. So I think those two things are important. I think. You know, a franchisor that has some skin in the game is important. You know, when you look at uh, what Taco Bell, I mean, they have almost, you know, 500 units or 480, and and they're building another, you know, 20, 30 locations, you know, trying to every year. And then RB certainly, I mean, they have almost a third of the system. So, you know, they're not going to make a decision that is damaging to the middle of the P&L because they have a bulk of the middle of the P&L. So there's a real symbiotic relationship in, 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 in how those decisions get made. And so I think being with a group or a franchise or that is growth-minded and, and opportunity-minded. I think those are great answers. And I know those are off-the-cuff answers. The second answer to me is a really, really interesting one. For those listening who are considering getting into the franchise space in some way, you know, the model over the last five, six, seven, eight, nine years has been to refranchise and for most brands to whittle themselves down to like a one to 3% corporate ownership. So if they had 2000 units, they'd only operate 20 to 50 units and they, and they allow franchisees to operate the rest of them. And they, over the last seven or eight or nine years have refranchised stores or sold stores to franchisees. Taco Bell and Arby's are two kind of sort of notable examples. Uh, Taco Bell has a lower corporate ownership, but Arby's has a pretty high corporate ownership you know, and then you have the other side of the fence, which is like Starbucks and Darden restaurants and, you know, and all these over here that are almost entirely, if not entirely corporate owned, um, which, you know, corporate historically does a really poor job of operating a P&L relative to a franchisee. But, 
But but the point that SG is making is that when a franchisor has a, a decent chunk of restaurants, they're more heavily invested in the brand success than they maybe are if they're just scraping the royalties off the top of franchisees. And it's an interesting and probably really valid point. You know, like going back to basketball being it's the final four, you guys have heard me say this before, like back in the 50s, they had tight shorts and socks up to their knees, right? And then you got to the 1980s and you had tight shorts and socks up to their knees. And then you got into the early 2000s and you had like baggy shorts down to their to their ankles, you know what I mean? You couldn't even tell if they had socks or not. And so, you know, like things go, what comes and goes and, you know, like you, you just see trends coming back after all these years. And, uh, you know, I, I assume that will happen at the franchisor level again. You know, maybe there will be a movement afoot and there might be a movement afoot when there's a little pain and suffering maybe in the marketplace for franchisors to take hold of some assets that are in distress and actually build their corporate ownership back to a more notable or sizable level and have more skin in the game. And by doing that, attract the right type of, you know, franchisee who sees that as a partnership because they operate stores and not just franchising. Um, that's a bigger point for another day, but I appreciate you bringing it up. It's a, it's a really interesting one for sure. I mean, what do you think about real estate? Tell me a little bit about real estate. You know more about real estate than almost anybody else does, SG. I mean, <laughs> I, w- I w- again, you're, you're, you think more highly of me than first I'm like, uh, you know, an NCAA oh, yeah. one quarterback and I'm a, now I'm a, the real estate guru, but uh, I've made some more real estate mis- mistakes than, than a lot of people. But uh, overall, we've we've managed to do, you know, fairly well. You know, I think, you know, the real estate market, we've been waiting for cap rates to go up for a decade. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, or longer. They just have been kept. They've been they continue to get they've been continuing to going down until very recently, right? So until the interest rate market uh, has moved, you know, substantially, uh, where it's starting, we're starting to see a little bit of cap rate degradation, right? For high quality assets like Taco Bell or long-term, you know, high quality franchisees like like Arby's, you're still able to garner a pretty good cap rate if you're if you're looking to, you know, sell sell those. I mean, these are 20, 30, 40, 50 year investments that have you know, passive cash flow and 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 our tax, you know, have some tax efficiencies. And so people are still really interested in those. But you know, the days of getting, you know, a sub five cap for, you know, a single unit, you know, operation, probably not here for a little while. The other piece of the real estate market today is, you know, what we're we're hoping and we think we're going to see some buying opportunities. We're probably seeing a little bit already, you know, certainly as if you're caught in some sort of debt that is getting ready to mature, you know, then you're you're going to be looking at a pretty big hit in cash flow if you have to refinance that, if you don't have the equity to sort of just sit around for a while because, you know, where you might have been getting, you know, two, three points of interest over the last five years in your in your in your term, or if you have a 10-year term or a CMBS or or some sort of you know life clock out, if that's coming up. You're probably inclined to get rid of that asset, right? And you're probably willing to do it for you know par value or debt value, and, and kind of you know sort of take any equity you have and maybe trade it. So I think that we're going to see some of that. We're seeing a little bit of it. I think we're going to continue to see some of that. We've been pretty bullish in the multifamily market. You know, historically, we've had a retail you know triple net portfolio uh, under the the AC Ventures enterprise. You know, David started the business, you know, based upon sale leaseback program with Payless back in the early 90s. 
built an amazing portfolio of real estate over those years. And what we've seen is that over time, you know, the value appreciation maybe isn't as great as the value appreciation of what we see in the multifamily market. Um, while the barrier to entry might be a little higher, the initial uh, cap rate may be a little lower, the initial return may be a little lower. We think there's favorable financing, you know, in the in the public markets like Freddie and Fannie over time. That that's a good place to be to preserve equity and to grow uh, your your real estate portfolio. So, you know, I think for high quality retail assets, restaurant assets, the market is going to be great, just fine. Other than that, you're going to see a lot of movement. Maybe people go out to other product types like multifamily or even industrial. You know, has had a big uh, push in the last few years just through the you know uh, Amazon and and sort of online digital markets place that that we see, which will probably continue to grow. Yeah, yeah, it's similar to what I tell people on the restaurant M and A side too. It's like if you have an asset uh, in a brand in the geography, the unit economics. If you have an asset that's really really strong, right, uh, it'll always command a great price and a lot of attention. But you know, otherwise, if you don't in this kind of market, you're, you know, like you said, you know, there's going to be there's going to be opportunities to buy probably at a lower price. At, you know, as interest rates come up and and uh, people have to refinance. These are these are big considerations and big cash flow crunches if we don't see some relief at some point on on uh, on the interest rate side. What do you see? Uh, if I could ask you, um, what do you see on the food cost side? Jumping back into the restaurant business, I mean, uh, how do you how do you think about inflation for the rest of this year and next year? I mean, not not asking you to be an economist, but I mean, what what are you feeling? Is it is it going to stagnate and, and drop in the second half of the year, or is it headed straight up uh, to the moon? Are we? I mean, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm definitely not an economist, but uh, you know, I watch CNBC every now and then, and we do have some purview to what we see is happen- happening in our food costs. And you know, I-, I think that you know, inflation will continue to, to come come down. I think we're going to see some better food costs throughout the balance of the year. I mean, we're kind of seeing it a little bit this year. I mean, Last year was insane. You know, we were in the 18% range, you know, food cost increases and labor was at 8%. And and so I think we're a little bit lower than projected in terms of, of food costs so far this year. You look at the inflation data, it seems to be slowly, you know, coming down. So hopefully that'll continue and we'll we'll see how, you know, the Fed continues to, to monitor that. I mean, the biggest issue most recently was, sort of the banking crisis, right, out out west with Silicon Valley Bank and opened up the eyes of maybe the Fed and, and how how much influence the interest rate hike is having or how how fast it can change the environment, you know, un, unintended, unintended consequences maybe. And so, you know, I think that, that that sort of stabilized. I think the banks overall kind of came together and said, okay, let's, the banking sector and the confidence in the banking sector Needs to needs to remain, um, but I do think that you know Fed has to take that into consideration and how fast they continue to to raise interest rates and potentially flatten and come back down. But I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm really not qualified to be saying any of this. So yeah, uh, shoot, I've been guessing for years and it's <laughs> been wrong the entire time. I did have right. a good buddy. One of my college buddies who who texts and he goes, I got my money out of Silicon Valley Bank like the afternoon that they shut the doors. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, like, I mean, wow, we, we like, live in the Bay Area. We saw a little bit of contagion there. Some banks uh, that we know 
but I think it's it was stabilized. I think had the 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 federal government not come out on Sunday morning or Sunday evening at 3 p.m. and said, hey, if you have real money in a deposit in a bank, we're going to make sure you get your real money and not just a bank certificate. You know, if, if that had not had happened, I think you would have saw lines of people at banks, particularly starting in the Bay Area because you're just closer to it. But eventually, you know, your neighbors would have been down at, you know, the local credit union, you know, they have some gun racks in there. Yeah, you know, like plenty of gun racks. Saying, Let me get my money, you know, because I don't trust you guys. And so, you know, you talk, people talk about bailouts and federal government, all that stuff. And this, to me, wasn't a bailout of the bank. And certainly, you know, I think there, there are some things that, that are being looked at with that, with that bank uh, and other banks. And, and they'll, they'll, they'll have to, you know, you, you can't bail out, you know, sort of the owners, investors of the bank. But you can certainly make sure that people who had money in there that they've earned or small businesses or people who need to make payroll, that that money is going to be available to to, you know, do what they need to do. So fortunately, I think that that sort of stabilizes, it's going to open up some oversight and, uh, you know, smart people like Jamie Dimon and others uh, will figure all that out. I appreciate your comment about, about real estate, you know, maybe there being some opportunities, you know, with interest rates. What do you think the uh, future of, on the restaurant side looks for, looks for you guys at DRG? What does it look like five years down the road? What do you think you're, it's going to be? That's a good question. You know, when, when you know, I, I started in 1213 when we started putting these companies together and I was strictly sort of real estate and followed and, and I was, you know, kind of, you know, side by side with David and, and looking at how we were building this restaurant company. Mm-hmm. But strategy was mostly real estate working with Brandon and, and Stein and Chris at, at First Street Development. And, and then, um, and then, you know, as we started to get bigger, we knew that we had to get more involved day to day. Uh, and I was kind of the, the short straw to, to do that. Um, and so I did. And, and ultimately, after, you know, having a franchisee or two kind of help run the company for us, got sort of far enough along to say, hey, we we need to do this ourselves. Um, and and I jumped in as the franchisee in 2019. Um, we had We had outsourced a lot of we had accounting, we had outsourced HR, we had outsourced um, a lot of the efforts that maybe you do when you're growing or a small company. But we got to a point where we needed to to sort of own it and, and, and control what we did. What we did, and we learned that from you know guys like like Joey and Pearson and the Tukala Group, and the, and the anglers really helped us quite a bit at Border and and Mark Peterson and and Crystal. But uh, they I've always heard that that's somewhere between like the 125 to 150 yeah, unit range yeah, they, is where you kind of go from outsourcing everything to kind of starting to bring it in house from an yeah, efficiency. I don't know the, the magic number, but I do know that, you know, had if I knew what I know now, I would probably kind of try to control it's it from the get go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but, 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 but the first thing that I did in 2019 when I took over the paper and really led the company 100%, the restaurant company, was we didn't really have a plan. So in January of 2020, we had a restaurant leadership conference in Las Vegas. And I think at the time we had 180 locations or something. And we said, okay, well, what are we going to do by 2024, right? Mm-hmm. And the plan was we're going we're to have three brands um, because we thought that multiple brands would create multiple opportunities for our, for our team. We're going to get to 500 restaurants because we believe scale mattered. 
And we're going to get to $700 million of top line revenue, right? Because we believe that revenue is going to drive opportunity. And that I was really, you know, hyped up about that and got into there in my first meeting and said, here's our goals. Here's what, here's what we're going to try to do. Let's go one DRG, one, one team, one dream. Uh, we all know what happened in February, 2020. You know, the, the lights went off for a few days uh, and, and COVID, you know, shut down. And so that became more crisis management. And, you know, how are we going to get through essentially what we have and stabilize that? And then, and then sort of, sort of over time, we, we start to stabilize. We buy something here. We buy something there. We continue to grow. And I'm going to our leadership conference this year, 2023. So almost four years, well, I guess three years, three years from that date. And I'm saying, well, okay, well, how are we tracking our 2024 goal? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, we don't have 500 restaurants. We have 330. So yeah, there's some still time to get there. But we do have three brands. I'm going to qualify our third brand as this wine brand that we came up with and branded called Squalovino that we have one location with in Tiburon, California, but we can service the entire country through our wine club. Uh, and we're going to build this little brand into a, a mighty brand. And uh, we have RBs, we have Taco Bell. Send that info to me. I'd love to learn something about it. If you're, yeah, if you're, I will. I will. Yeah. Obviously, with our, you know, we have a lot of background being from Sonoma, Napa in the, in the wine business. David has had a, a wine brand for, you know, 15, I think 2006 was his first vintage. But, and then when we look at our top line goal, you know, by the end of 24, we're going to exceed, but, but with just organic growth, you know, our yeah. goal from, from, from 2020. So, so I was really floored when I looked at these numbers recently, because I, I didn't expect through everything that we had, that we would actually could be able to achieve that. We may not get to the 500 stores but we're going to get to the revenue and, and the brand projection. And what that means is that we've per store, our AUVs, you know, have grown greater than we, we hoped. We've built 40 Taco Bells, including seven cantinas. We've built almost eight uh, Arby's since we've had them. And, you know, we, you know, we, we continue to grow that top line. So I think it's really about what do we set our goals to, right? And we go into our DRG leadership conference next week. That's uh it's called race to the top. You know, we have F1 coming to, to Las Vegas in November. So we're sort of honoring that and step leading into it and saying, how do we get, you know, to our goals and how do we essentially, you know, look to double in our revenue, uh, you know, double in, double in size and, and create more opportunities. And we look at F1 of being uh, a place where there's a lot of teamwork done, you know, it's not un- unlike, you know, being in the restaurant business where you need all these people to be able to, to do something that leads to the end product. And so um, we're really kind of going after that and going to set some goals next week on, on where we're going to land in 2028, being that we're going to hit these, these intentions that we made in 2020. Um, and, you know, I just think that those things are important, you know, intentions and, and what you're setting out to do is important to, to put out in front of you. I love it. You've done an amazing job. It's a really cool story. Taking over as Frank president franchisee in 2019 from the background that you had. Not easy, not growing up in the restaurant business to to to, to do what you've done, really. And uh, uh, I, I got to ask a couple of quick fire questions. because We got like two or three minutes left here. Number one, 30 seconds or so. Would you consider investing in non-restaurant franchises and what would turn you to it if so? Yes. I mean, just similar intrinsics, you know, uh, Good brand, you know, good, good, um, 
you know, good franchisor. And yeah, I mean, there's there's other products out there that I'm sure would would qualify. There's kind of a very little cross pollinization. Uh, we all in the industry would have thought it would have been more of cross pollinization by now, but it hasn't really happened in in huge. You know, you know, so. you know, there's there's some folks that do some good good job at it. I mean, I think Tom Tom Cook and uh, Tom Cook yeah. comes to mind. He's got some fitness. He's got some other brands, and he's done a really good job at diversification from from the restaurant business. You know, we've invested in other restaurants like. You know, we're 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 invested with Michael Mina, who is a really great, you know, amazing, you know, chef. Yeah, right. Uh, great and, restaurants on in New York. I mean, in, in uh, all yeah, over, really, in Las Vegas. So, yeah, it's really yeah. good to see see what he's doing, and so it, it's really led to a lot of, of of interesting opportunities for us. I bet, I bet. Here's another question for you: How much you sleeping these days? You know, I sleep, I sleep a lot, you know, I mean, I get, <laughs> you do okay. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I just got, you probably got 11 or 12,000 people working for you. I mean, it's a, it's, it's gotta be a tough job. You know? Yeah. But look at, I have eight, I have eight golden bell winners, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I have, uh, and then you have eight golden bell winners because you have, you know, 50 amazing area coaches and, and you've got amazing directors and great leaders. And I'm sort of like, you know, I'm trying to learn from some of the great leaders and CEOs out there that's really about putting the, the right people in place and, and allowing them to do their best job and, and giving them the avenue to and being there for them uh, with, with the questions that they need. You know, I was I was reading on the flight out here a quote or a little back page of, of Ron Howard. You remember you remember yeah. Opie? Uh, you probably, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, you remind me of Opie. You were probably like Opie as a kid. You know, I could see you <laughs> running down to the creek with your fishing pole. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah, didn't have enough money for a fishing pole. I I just had a stick, like you did. Well, that's what he had. That's what what he had. But he talked about as he became a director, and I'll try to paraphrase it. He would do a shoot, and you know, oftentimes an actor or a cinematographer or a sound person would come in and want to do it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And he would ask himself, "Okay, does it? Does the way they want to do it change?" you know, the intent of the shot that he's trying to create. And if, if the answer was yes, it changes what he wanted, that he would, he would just say, okay, well, this is not what we want, so, so let's not do it. But most of the time, if it wasn't going to change what he wanted, then he would just, okay, that's, let's do it that way. It sounds great. But most of the time, it was, it was his rule called 6-1, right? And we've all heard 6-1. It's 6-1, half a dozen the other. Like, do we... If their idea is different than my idea, if I was doing it, I would do it this way. They're going to do it and they want to do it this way. It's probably going to be the same. So let's support the way they want to do it because they're executing it. Right. And they're going to. And and often he said more times than not, the shoe would come out better because it's their idea. Mm-hmm. It's their execution of what they want. They're going to put more passion into it than than your idea. And so that I thought about that, and I think that's a lot of the way that our company works from from the top throughout. You know, all of our leaders is we respect what you know our team members and our executives want to do, and if it's a little bit different than we would do it, but a six one half desire, we say, you know, go do it your way, and let's see the results, and you know, we can see them, and 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 where we're at today at the Golden Bell. Yay, that's wonderful. Enjoy, enjoy Hawaii. I'll say that my favorite Taco Bell product has always been the double decker taco. I can eat that thing until my face turns green. What about you? Uh, last question. What's your favorite Taco Bell menu product? And then we'll end with that. 
Well, it's different than the question that you had earlier, which was if I was in a desert island. Yeah, right. With my Taco Bell. That, that's know, actually what I asked you. If you're on a desert I'm island. I'm going to ask but, that. Yeah. For, yeah um, first of all, if I was in a desert island, I want this Kikuya nut, which is a, you know, the Hawaiian nut that has, if you break it open in the inside, it burns, right? And and the and the Hawaiians used to, used to use it for guidance, and now they use it for enlightenment and, and, and guidance. And so... If I was in a desert island, I hope there's a lot of kikuya nuts. And if I could have anything at Taco Bell, it'd be the grilled cheese, you know, steak burrito, yeah. uh, because yeah. I'd be on a desert island, I'd be very hungry, yeah. and that's a very you know filling and, and delicious yes. product. Yes. Um, but it's also you know if you get the spice one, it can be pretty spicy, so I need something to wash it down with. Yeah, and so I'd probably get one of our Baja Blast twisted freezes from our cantina. You know, big yard of it, uh, and a and a grilled cheese burrito, twist wow. freeze, and I'd be in heaven on, on the Dude. desert island. I'm, 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 what I'm else would you need? I'm maybe, looking for maybe. that desert island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and no internet service. Right. So, exactly. SG, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for it's been real insightful. I know everyone's enjoyed it and will enjoy it. For those of you who tuned in, thank you for doing so. We'll come back with a, another webinar in, in a couple of months. I'm, I'm noodling on what it'll be, but we may go into legal challenges and in, in negotiating M&A transactions. That, that's kind of on my mind right now, and that'll be a pretty informative one. Um, but, but thank you so much, SG. Blessings to you. I hope you guys continue to kick butt in your businesses. And uh, thanks, so, thanks so much for everything. All right. Thanks, Rick. Fun being here. Great seeing you, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, All right. Bye-bye now. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom. Thank you.